a word of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. If you still have your Bibles open at Mark chapter 7, page 1010, I think that'd be really good. But I'd like to, like to begin with the following question. How far would you be willing to travel in order to meet or see or hear someone you really admired? Your favourite musician, perhaps, or a dear friend, or indeed a well-known Christian teacher. How far do you think you'd be willing to travel? How far do you think you'd be willing to travel to meet Jesus in the flesh, if that were possible? And without the benefit of modern transport? And if you made that journey, what do you think you would say to him when you met him? Well, here in this passage, Mark chapter 7, we have some people who came all the way from Jerusalem to Galilee, nearly 100 miles, to see Jesus. And what was it, do you suppose, that had brought them so far? Was it, I wonder, that they had been impressed by Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God? There's so much of that uh, that we read about in the earlier chapters of Mark. Or was it they, they had been fascinated by his uh, striking parables? Or was it those remarkable healings that brought them there? Had they heard about the way that Jesus had calmed the storm and how he had fed thousands of people with just those five loaves and two fishes? Why had these Pharisees and teachers of the law, those scribes, come and what, what would they ask Jesus when they got there? Well, anyway, they did come and they did arrive and they gather around Jesus and his disciples. They watch and they listen. And finally, they have a question for Jesus. Why don't your disciples wash their hands before meals? What? You've travelled all that way, a hundred miles, to ask that. This, please note, is not a question about food hygiene. It's a very good idea from that point of view to wash your hands before meals. But this is a question about religious ritual. The Old Testament law, the law of Moses, had specified a hand-washing routine for the priest's in the temple. But the scribes, those teachers of the law, thought that it ought to apply to all Jews. And the Pharisees agreed with them. It was the scribes who sort of came up with all these ideas, and the Pharisees who dedicated their lives to following out this and hundreds of other traditions and rituals and practices. So the question from them to Jesus was a test. It was an exercise, if you like, in patrolling the boundaries. 
Were Jesus and his disciples keeping to these rules, the traditions of the elders? Were they really kosher? Were they in or out? Were they a member of us and our team, or did they belong to some other team or group or club? So, um, at what at first sight seems a fairly innocent and superficial question, receives from Jesus himself a perhaps surprisingly, a shockingly forthright answer in verse 6. Jesus picks up that passage from Isaiah, chapter 29, and, and applies it to them. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Not very nice, is it? But, you see, this question of the scribes and the Pharisees betrayed their real and underlying motives and attitudes. Zealous, influential, and highly religious they may have been. But their religion, in Jesus' view, was a sham, a pretense. It was hypocritical. They had a passional right, but certainly not a passion for life. No less than three key questions are raised in this passage that I believe are as relevant today as they were then all those years ago. There's a question about worship, our whole approach to serving and honouring God. Will our worship be with our lips only or with our hearts? And then there's a question about authority, our ultimate source of guidance and instruction. Will our ultimate authority be human tradition or the word of God? And then there's a question, question about morality, behavior that's good and right. Will morality be merely outward or genuinely inward? Three questions then, one about worship, one about authority, and one about morality. Let's deal with each of these in turn. Firstly, the question about worship. Will it be lips or hearts? The actual quotation from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 29 that Jesus throws at the scribes and the Pharisees is this. Isaiah was complaining, or rather God, through Isaiah, was complaining, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You see, Jesus saw in the attitude and behavior of these scribes and Pharisees a fulfillment of that prophecy. It was coming true right before his eyes. Not only Isaiah, but many of God's prophets had continually protested against the evil of hypocrisy, of lip service towards God in worship. And many of those, prophet, uh, of those prophets, as you know, were persecuted and even killed for their pains. And it was happening all over again. So let us have a deep think about this ourselves. Do we worship God with our lips only? Or do we worship God from our hearts? This is not, of course, to say that words don't matter. Some of us today may need to be reminded that God actually rather likes words. He caused three quarters of a million of them 
to come down to us in the form of the Bible. But precisely because words are so important, we need to be very careful with them and make sure that the words of our mouths match the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Jesus himself said that we will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word we have spoken. So it's vital then that the words we speak with our lips match the thoughts and attitudes we cherish in our hearts. Think about it. We might attend church on a regular basis. We might sing the hymns and the songs lustily. We might say a hearty amen as we receive the bread and the wine in our services of Holy Communion. We might read the lesson. We might lead the prayers. We might contribute to discussions in a home group. We might teach in Sunday school. We might preach sermons from the front of church. But none of these things are sure signs that our hearts are right before God. When God was looking for a king for his Old Testament people, he said this through the prophet Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Is our worship with lips alone, or is it with and from our hearts. That's the first matter in this passage, but now the second is to do with authority. These scribes and Pharisees were not only putting lips before hearts in the matter of worship, they were also putting man's word before God's in the matter of authority. So is authority based on human tradition or on God's word? This point seems very important to Jesus because he repeats it three times in this passage, Mark 7. The quote from Isaiah continues, their teachings are but rules taught by men. And then in verse, uh, Mark chapter 7 and verse 8, Jesus says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on instead to the traditions of men. And then the next verse, verse 9, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And then Jesus gives a striking example in verses 10 and following. An example works like this. A person could dedicate a sum of money to the service of God in the temple. And they could designate that sum of money as korban. That is to say, a gift dedicated to God. Now, if you did that, you didn't have to give the money away straight away. You could hang on to it. Indeed, you could use it for yourself for the time being. Now, supposing that a person who dedicated a sum of money as Corban, dedicated to the service of God in the temple, supposing that person's parents became destitute and urgently needed some of that money, Oh, well, I'd love to give it to you, but you can't have it. It's promised to God. And even if you went 
for advice uh, to, uh, to a scribe, he would tell you the same thing. You can't give that money to your parents. You've promised it to God in the temple. Do you see the human tradition of Corban has been allowed to trump the divine command to honour your father and your mother and to care for them in practical ways in their time of need. Human traditions can cover up and smother divine commands. The story is told of the day when a young baby was christened or baptised. After the service, the relatives and friends gathered back at the family home for a celebration. And as they arrived, they took off their coats, and these were taken upstairs and dumped in a pile on one of the beds. The guests chatted for a while, had something to eat and drink, and generally enjoyed themselves. Then someone said, where's the baby? There was a panic as everyone realized they'd forgotten all about why they were there in the first place. And the house was searched from top to bottom. And finally, the baby was found, half suffocated under that pile of coats. The scribes and the Pharisees had started off with the word of God, but they had stretched it and complicated it and added to it so much that God's word itself had been suffocated under all this tradition. Now, traditions are not always or necessarily bad things. Life could be pretty chaotic if we didn't have some customary ways of doing things. We have services here, Sunday morning at uh, 10 o'clock and Sunday evening 6.30. Supposing we changed the times of the services every week or even every year, we wouldn't know whether we're coming or going. We need routines and agreed ways of doing things. But, uh, but we need to be careful that our traditions and customs and routines do not take the place of the word of God, that they do not end up nullifying or cancelling out God's inspired word. In other words, traditions can make very good servants, but they always make terrible masters. A generation ago... Many Christians were still concerned to have endless rules about personal behavior, such as drinking, smoking, and dancing. And we've kind of got beyond a lot of that rule-bound behavior, and rightly so. Because no such rules can be found in Scripture. But today, we continue to have different opinions about various church practices, such as liturgy, patterns of ministry, choice of music, and so on. And it's good to have a view about these things and discuss what might be best. But we have no right to impose our personal views on others as if these had the status of Holy Scripture, where and when Scripture itself is silent on these matters. To Jesus, Scripture was always the final court of appeal. Have you not read, he would ask, what's written in your law? The teaching of scripture must always be the final arbiter in any debate or dispute, and not our own mere customs and traditions.
So then, worship, is it to be with the lips or from the heart? Authority is our ultimate appeal to the human tradition or to God's word. But now thirdly, Jesus turns to the question of morality. Is it to be outward or inward? And this, if you recall, was where it all began, with that question from the Pharisees and the scribes about hand-washing, that kind of example of outward cleanliness, outward purity. Jesus now turns to the crowd, verses 14 and 15, and addresses them. Nothing, he says, outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Finding this to be a bit of a riddle, the disciples ask Jesus for an explanation. And they get one. In God's eyes, says Jesus, impurity does not come from what goes down into the stomach, but what comes up out of the heart. And then in verses 21 and 22, Jesus gives a rather alarming list of vices and asserts that the root problem of sin is not what happens to us from the outside. Sin is not what happens to us, but it's what we are and what bubbles up from us from the inside. The stream is not polluted by somebody throwing rubbish into it somewhere downstream. The stream is polluted at its source. Now, this is not comfortable teaching, and it never has been. But it's actually very good news. It's good news because it makes us face up to the reality, not simply of human nature generally, but of our own human nature. It's good news because it means that we no longer have to worry about trying to be good enough for God. And it's good news because it puts us precisely in the right place to receive what God so freely offers us in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness, purity, and a new life in him. Right at the outset of his ministry, Jesus announced why he had come. Mark chapter 2 and verse 17. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. I've come, he says, not to call those who think they are good enough, but to welcome those who know that they are not good enough. Jesus has come not with a list of rules, but he has come to renew our sinful and corrupt hearts. And out of these renewed hearts will then flow new attitudes and new motives that will then overflow in acts of love and mercy. These then are not futile attempts to patch over bad consciences like a veneer, These are not absurd attempts to commend ourselves to a holy God. These are rather expressions of gratitude, the overflow of love, the beat of a heart that is one with the heartbeat of God himself. Let us not think for a moment that we can do anything 
to recommend ourselves to God and make ourselves acceptable to God. Let us receive the free gift of life in Jesus Christ and then in sheer gratitude let us seek God's guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit that our lives might overflow with those acts of upright, good and just behaviour. So it's not try harder, but trust him. It's not turning over a new leaf, but receiving a new life. It is not do, but done. And then the, bo- the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ will keep us in eternal life. Let us pray. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be now and always pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.